1: Welcome to the 602 Club, Trek FM's local watering hole, and I am just one of your hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and with me, as she is every single week, sister of the sisterhood, Christy Morris.
0: Well, hello. Thank you so much for that warm introduction, and man, I am here and ready to kick some butt and use some sign language. Excellent. Excellent.
1: I'm glad you did not use the voice on me. I appreciate that. Um, I, oh, yeah. I find that no. to be kind of rude when you do that.
0: That's only reserved for the most extreme circumstances when, you know, someone's got to put you in your place. Okay. Okay. Oh, good to know. <laughs> um,
1: well, we're uh, really excited tonight because one of the biggest movies of the year has finally been released. And we are going to be talking about... Villano's Dune, which I'm super excited to get to. I've been waiting for this movie for a long time, especially since it was supposed to come out last year and I had started rereading the books and all that. Oh my gosh. Anyway, before we get to all of that, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. So please make sure you're subscribed wherever that is. Uh, and if you would give us a star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, we'd be really excited for that. Um, we still get so many of our listeners from the Apple podcast system. And so by giving us a star rating review, it does help the show grow. It helps people find the show when they're searching for shows there and new podcasts. Of course, you could find us on Twitter at The 602 Club. We're on uh, Instagram at The 602 Club TFM. And in fact, Christy, we had done a little bit contest there for people following us. And so I went through all of the new followers there. We want to say thank you to all of them, but I chose a winner for their opportunity to choose any MCU movie they'd like digitally. Uh, And so Russ, uh, it's uh, at Russ M33. Uh, Just contact us there on Twitter and I will make sure that you can get your copy of any MCU movie of your choice digitally. uh, I'll send that to you. So thank you so much for following us, everybody. We really appreciate it. Um, We are Christy. Absolutely. yeah. We're over 250 followers now on Twitter. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Oh my God.
0: That's awesome. Yeah.
1: So cool. So we really do appreciate it. And uh, Hey, if you're not following us, please go over there and follow us. Uh, We've got some great stuff coming to you all the time. Uh, We're always talking nerd news and things over there on the 602 club. Uh, on Twitter and of course again, you could find us on Instagram at 602 Club TFM. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook with the entire network over at Facebook at Facebook.com slash FM. And then there is the listeners only discussion group for where fans from all over the world can talk about the shows together. Uh, you can just find that on Facebook by typing in Babel Conference and you'll find the group. Uh, and of course, you can go over to the website at trek.fm and you'll see all of the shows we're doing. We've got some great stuff coming out these days. And of course, the 602 Club. And you can go to the contact section if you would like to send Christy and I an email. So Christy, I'm wondering uh, as we... You know, come into this movie. Obviously, um, there's been previous adaptations. That you know, this comes from a famous book series, and so I'm I'm wondering what your Dune history is.
0: Well, people might be shocked, and I hope won't revoke my geek card. But I had heard about the books and the previous movie from '84 and the limited series on TV, but never actually consumed any Dune content until this movie. Wow. So, uh, yeah, (laughs) don't know how I missed it, but um, no, I do know how I will tell you way back when I was watching Mm sci-fi channel in the 90s and 2000s with my dad, of course, um, I remember seeing the commercials for the sci-fi channel series of Dune and thinking every time that it was referenced that it felt so huge and epic that it was too much. And so that's why I didn't attempt to get Mm -hmm. into it. But that's probably the way a lot of people feel Mm -hmm. about Star Wars.
1: Yeah, no, I can understand that. Um, You know, Dune is definitely a very expansive thing. I mean, you know, you you not only have uh, Hebert's original, uh, Frank Hebert's original books. Which he has Dune plus his five sequels to it. Um, Then you also have uh, his son as well as Kevin J. Anderson have written quite extensively in the Dune universe with they did the sequels off of his notes, as well as prequel books and books in between different parts of the series. So, I mean, it is huge. And uh, honestly, you know, it, it it's funny. And, and I don't think it's all that strange because, I mean, I didn't read Dune until uh, 2015 uh, as of getting ready for a podcast crossover that we did here with the 602 Club. Um, We did with Educating Geeks, and then uh, the 602 Club got together, and on Educating Geeks, we talked about the book together. And then uh, they came over here, and we talked about the movie. Uh, And so that was back on episode Mm. 66, Spice Trip on the Sloop John B. And uh, so... And, you know, I I mean, my first experience with the book was fantastic. I really fell in love with the book and not so much the 1984 movie. Um, That was really not my, honestly, as, uh, you know, (laughs) Austin Powers would say that just wasn't my bag. And so uh, Mm -hmm. but I, I loved the book. And so I ended up. Um, you know, as the movie was going to come out last year, I decided that I would read um all of his books that he had written. And so I went through uh his original Dune novel as well as the rest of his sequels, and then I ended up um reading the uh the two books that Kevin J. Anderson and Brian Hebert wrote to complete the series off his father's notes. And then I've just been going through this year as well, reading the prequel books. So I've been immersed in this world of Dune, and mm. I've really been enjoying it. Now, I've never seen any of the miniseries that were done uh, on the Sci-Fi Channel. I did not get a chance to see those, um, mainly because they're not easy to get a hold of these days. Um, you, you know, uh, you'd have to buy them on disc. Yeah, or, not now. Yeah. <laughs> and so not really a good place to be able to see those. So I've not seen those versions, but I was obviously very much looking forward to uh, the moment that I heard that Neil Villeneuve was going to be doing this. I, I loved his Blade Runner 2049. It's, I, it's a masterpiece in filmmaking, and I could not think of anybody better, honestly, um, to do this. So I was very excited. Now, that's a question that i'm really interested since you know you really weren't uh, super familiar with the world of dune um and you know you hadn't really watched anything else were you excited uh mm-hmm. when you saw the trailers and the previews for this
0: i think it was curiosity more than anything um definitely wanting to see something um more condensed than starting off straight away with all the books cuz that did feel so ever- overwhelming um but then knowing you know, from also experience on my own as well, that um, books developed into film don't always translate. So I was a little apprehensive mm-hmm. in that sense, but I, you probably were especially so <laughs> as I'm sure a lot of people were that had been fans of the books for so long. Um, but yeah, I, I was curious and it looked like it was going to be very artistic. And it's actually kind of funny that Um, I also ended up finding out that, um, Villeneuve did Blade Runner 2049 because the Mm -hmm. other day when someone asked me if I, what I thought of this movie, I said, it feels very similar to Mm -hmm. Blade Runner, like an art kind of thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, well, and on that too, I mean, one of the big parts of, of this movie is that he's decided to adapt it into two parts. And so did you know that coming in, mm-hmm. or was that a surprise when you sat down to watch the movie and it said, "Dune, part one?"
0: It was a surprise. I didn't know it before I saw the movie did you uh,
1: I did know that coming in because you know I'd been kind of keeping up with um, that whole the whole behind the scenes stuff going on with the film. And, and I, I think it was really smart, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously he was very keen on this idea because it's just way too complex to do in one movie and do it justice. And I mean, in all honesty, you would have mm-hmm. to basically do a four hour movie. um, And, you know, that just doesn't work. And so this way, I think you can really uh, do the film justice. And I mean, there's still things that they're going to have to cut out. In fact, you know, one of the biggest things uh, about this is that this movie, one of the focuses they gave it so they could help kind of streamline things as much as possible was really to focus on the story of, of Paul and Jessica, you know, even kind of creating some things that aren't in the book, like giving their own secret hand gesture language where they can kind of communicate silently with one another. And I mean, the movie really hmm. does focus on them as characters uh, and and uh, I think, in a way that helps kind of make it their journey that we're following. You know, obviously, Paul is kind of the main character who we're following, but Jessica we're also following very much as well. So, you know, I think, um, I, to me, it was like, it, just like with adapting any book series, especially like Harry Potter or whatever, you know, as you're reading those books, you have to figure out, okay, so what is... What is the viewpoint to which I'm going to try and tell this story so that it allows you to shape everything else about the film around that? And so I think it worked pretty well. Now, you coming in, obviously, you don't have a familiarity with the books, but did that work for you here as you were just coming in, you know, clean slate with the movie?
0: Yes, actually, definitely did, because that's something that you and I have talked about before can hurt a movie is when you have too many different directions that the film is going in and it doesn't feel like there's a core story driving everything, um, the, you end up losing people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I'd heard as a complaint about, um, the past adaptations of this into film or TV was that it was still just so much exposition mm-hmm. and so many different things going on that they're trying to cram into something, um, that, people get overwhelmed and there's no real story to follow um, as well as it is in the books so yeah I think that that was a a vital thing for making this especially down to two parts um, and made this feel like a cohesive Mm. story nice okay
1: yeah that's I mean that's probably exactly that is exactly what he's going for you know and so I think that's fantastic Mm -hmm. Uh, now obviously two. you know one of the big parts in adapting this is that all of the aspects around what's happening with the emperor and the politics involved with the empire you know they they do minimize that here in the movie even though it's still there did you feel like that you were understanding kind of the political ramifications of what's going on here well enough so you felt comfortable as to just kind of get what's going on
0: yeah yeah i I think that they boiled it down to okay what's the big thing going on with the emperor and that you get right away that they're saying the emperor really rules over every planet basically and they all recognize him as supreme authority but also there's these individual houses kind of like tribes or something um that report to him um, and then you find out, you know, sort of like you're a, a bystander um, that the emperor has taken aside and was basically just tricking House Atreides into being killed off. So I thought that that came across really well here. And I think that it was wise of them to cut anything that was kind of superfluous in this approach.
1: Yeah, I I, I agree with you. I think. You know, I, and part of this too is I, I did see the movie a few times this weekend. One just because uh, spoiler mm-hmm. alert, I was enjoying it, um, and I've been waiting so long to see it. Um, but uh, two, you know, I, I feel like a, a movie of this this size and this magnitude um, really, I think, it does need to be seen a few times just so you can just really. Let it sink in, you know, like, and sit with it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I, I was really impressed with uh, the the way that they handled this because there are a lot of politics involved. Um, you know, in, in many ways, you can absolutely see where, uh, you know, George Lucas took inspiration for the prequels of Star Wars because there are a lot of politics involved with these different houses. Right. Um in some ways, you can almost see uh, some inspiration. And I think maybe this might have helped you. I, I, you've seen Game of Thrones. So, you know, mm-hmm. having those different houses in Game of Thrones, you know, that, and, and I think the politics there works similar to this as well, you know, like where you have these great houses that are all vying yeah. for power and everything, and you have some that are more honorable than others. And so I think all of that works. And I, I you know, I think... To put that through the context and the lens of Paul's coming of age story, I think it really works, you know, that all of these forces are kind of working against each other. But in this, it's really about this this boy becoming a man and uh, and his place in the universe, which could be immense you know uh, by the time we're done with the story Mm -hmm. so i i 100 agree with that um you know the one aspect i'll say with it in this adaptation that i do kind of wish had been a little bit stronger and i was really thankful that you know obviously uh paul and jessica uh, get a a lot of play in this film and our our focus obviously but I do wish and, and I feel like they could have done this in a couple of scenes and they just they didn't quite get to where I wanted to, them to go. But one of the big story points of the series is, you know, they don't quite explain for somebody who hasn't read the story exactly why Jessica and Leto aren't married Um, And exactly how that works Mm -hmm. with what the Benny Jesuits are doing um, and what their plan is. You know, we you know from the movie that her their plan is to create this mind that is going to bring humanity to a better place. That's their goal. But we you don't learn is that Jessica was given to Leto as a concubine because of their breeding plans that have led them to this point. And she's only supposed to have daughters for him. And the reason she's a concubine, because that way as a great Lord of a house, he could get married to somebody else politically, you know, and all those kind of things. Um, And it's, Mm -hmm. it's Jessica and Leto actually falling in love. Like she falls in love with him and therefore she gives him a son. And I wish, and that's a big part of the series because Benny Jesuits push away love for duty Uh, instead and Mm -hmm. it's love that leads her to give Leto a son and that's what creates Paul so in the end the possibility of him being the one comes from love not from a plan and I think that's a really interesting Mm -hmm. storyline that I wish was there because I think that's kind of an interesting theme to follow throughout the entire story um, and it's definitely important because it also, I think it helps bring those two characters together, you know, in that sense for the, the little amount that we would get them on screen, Lido and Jessica, I think they do a good enough job, but I just feel like that's an important story point. I would have wanted to see a little more.
0: I'm glad you explained that because I was unaware of that. Um, however, I did notice that they mentioned um, he says I should have mm-hmm. married you, and that's when I was like, oh, wait a minute. And then at one point as well, I believe it's, um, oh gosh, the head of House Harkonnen that yeah. says or yeah. Harkonnen, whatever um, Baron Harkonnen. He says yeah. something about your mm-hmm. concubine. Yep. And I was like, oh, okay, so they weren't married. And then um, it was also interesting to me that she isn't she called the Reverend Mother? Is the yeah the the main Benedictine
1: Jesuit? Um, uh, is the Reverend Mother? Yeah.
0: Okay, so when she says you were supposed to give daughters, Mm -hmm. but from your pride decided to give a son, that part confused me because I'm like, well, but nobody chooses the gender of their child. Well, and that's
1: that's one of the things that I I guess, again, too, that's just where they could have used just a little bit more in that. If you come into this blind and, and don't have the the knowledge of the books, which is not your fault, the movie should give this to you. Uh, the Benny Jesuits um, mm-hmm. have complete control over their bodies down to the smallest like detail. And so when they mm-hmm. get pregnant, they can choose the sex of the child. That's what okay. allows them to control the breeding as they've been. And that's why they're set up to, to be given to these great houses because they've been mixing the bloodlines for uh, so many years trying to create this one. Mm-hmm. Um And so again, that's just where a little bit more explanation for people who have not been immersed in the source material, I think is needed and, and actually mm-hmm. helps you understand the story just a little bit better. And again, You know, that scene, I. That may be the only scene in the movie that I don't love because that's not exactly why Jessica. She doesn't choose this because she's trying to create the one. She chooses this because she loves Mm Leto and she, Leto desired a son. You know, Mm -hmm. as is, you know, in this situation, creating a son and an heir is so important. And therefore, um, she gives him what he desires because she loves him, not because she's anything else. And so that's probably the one place mm-hmm. where I and the only place I would ding that
0: honestly, this adaptation where I'm like, I uh, that's not quite it. It could have been a quick, you know, saying that Bene Jesuits can mm-hmm. control their body. And, it, you know, then you're done with it. Right. I mean, yeah.
1: in that scene, you could have had the Reverend Mother say you had the you you know you have the choice you you can you know and and i would have much more appreciated right. if they had added you know the fact that because of you know you fell in love with him and not just that she's prideful yeah. trying to create this one
0: right yeah that would have explained it better uh the other thing that did confuse me that i was curious for how it made you feel was they did not ever actually explain where you know what the purpose or where the voice comes mm-hmm. from um just that she has taught her mm-hmm. son their right. ways um and you know that he has this power but it takes some mm-hmm. training and some work um to develop it the right way and then right. to use it only when necessary um but they don't explain where he got mm-hmm. it from or you know other than like she trained him but you know is it like a situation where anybody could learn it or is it like a genetic predisposition <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah no it's it's only a benny jesuit uh trait and um and it's only something that they could be taught uh and therefore because he's her son he's inherited her powers and um okay. and something again that's So that's very, what they yeah, meant. Yeah. That's very difficult with the benny jesuits is that they These are powers that are inherent only to women, um, and men who have these powers are kind of a waste to them because they can never be uh, awakened to become reverend mothers because the process to become a reverend mother takes this this specific – I, it would uh, it's honestly just like this poison basically that kind of awakens them so that they can uh have an, an all they can then connect with all of the lifetimes of their uh previous generations mothers so basically all the way back mm. you know so what it gives them is this, this incredible perspective this incredible knowledge this incredible understanding um it it makes them incredibly good at truth uh saying because they can tell if somebody's lying um gives them means Mm -hmm. and ridiculous kind of powers like the voice and like things like that even more so and so and no man has ever survived that so basically what they're looking for in the one is the ability to have a man be able to go through that um and no spoilers. Yes, so that's that. <laughs> I mean, and, and again, me. <laughs> that's the thing. I mean, this is there's it, there's this is one of the things that that makes the book so difficult to adapt. There's such detail in this book. It's like Lord of the Rings for science fiction, in in that, I, and I mean that in the best possible way. In that, you know, Lord of the Rings, you know, there's plenty of things that even as great as the movies are at three hours apiece, piece. There's still plenty of things you don't get because there's just not time, you know, um, mm-hmm. to adequately explain everything and, and understand everything. So, um, yeah, I, I I think that's just one of the that's just one of the places where I, I feel like specifically the movie probably could have done it slightly better, especially for those who because I mean, my wife doesn't know Dune; she's never read it either, and she mm. even though she liked the movie, she said there's so much here I realize I'm missing um, just because as much as I'm getting I also know that's probably like a third of it just because there's so much else mm-hmm. so obviously the production design of creating this kind of world and basically a whole universe is really important and so I wanted to hear I, I'm really interested from you who has no idea about Dune at all uh, what how you feel about how they did with creating this world of Dune and was it successful for you in, in making you feel immersed in this universe?
0: Yeah, it, it really was truly. I think that they get across very well with the different versions of the architecture um, as well as the ships and things like that, that this is a very futuristic point in time. Um, but that also everything still suits the environments where they are. Mm -hmm. So, you know, definitely thinking primarily of once they get to Arrakis, Mm -hmm. um, it's absolutely, you can tell built for people that are used to living and, you know, working and everything, this land all the time, Mm -hmm. um, And I liked that it felt like, and maybe you can tell me if the books were actually designed to be this way, but it felt like they were inspired by um, life in the Middle East. Oh, yes. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like the the Bedouins and Mm -hmm. uh, Morocco and the Sahara and everything out there. So, you know, like, because even some of the names sound like Arab names. Yes,
1: absolutely. That's on purpose for sure.
0: So, yeah, and I mean, I think that it works to adapt that into this sci-fi story, because Mm -hmm. that kind of environment, there are absolutely people that learn how to survive properly and people that never make it.
1: Right. Yeah, I think, you know, the most interesting thing about Dune is that it's really this medieval futurism. You know, so much of it Mm -hmm. feels futuristic. And yet at the same time, a lot of it feels medieval, you know, with these
0: yeah, like with the houses. Yeah,
1: the houses feeling castle-like and, you know, the idea that they've they've really gone back to swords for battle, you know, uh, because
2: mm-hmm.
1: the shields that they use on their bodies create the this ability of of having, you know, projectile type weapons being useless. Um you could use laser guns, um, laser guns as they call them in the series, but those have a uh basically an atomic effect against a shield that no, nobody wants that, um, because you know you're basically mm-hmm. creating an atomic bomb, um, so yeah, you've really found a way to kind of bring it back to this few this this medieval. Feel um, and and so and I think you know they do such a great job with all of the different planets. Obviously, Caladan feeling um, you know like the northwest <laughs> very much. Uh, honestly, lots of rain, ocean. You know um, things feeling wet a lot because it's it it's always either raining or cooler there. Uh, mm. Gendry Prime, uh, you know the the being the house Harkonnen home. Uh, feeling like this place where they've literally mined everything you know it almost reminds me of the look of um kind of what Zack snyder was going for in uh, man of steel with krypton which was that they basically mined the planet mm-hmm. to its core um salusa um, you know, it's fascinating because in the prequel series, Salusa was actually, um, originally the imperial headquarters, uh, the imperium, uh, headquarters, uh, for the emperor. And then it's later turned into, uh, the planet that you see, which is the prison planet, which is crazy. And then, yeah, I mean, Arrakis is perfect. I mean, they, they created Dune in every detail that you want from the sill suits to the way the sandworms work to the thoppers to the way the spice you can see in the sky. I mean, just feels Mm -hmm. amazing. Um, The only thing I would have loved is that, you know, ships in Dune travel through folded space. So they basically, they fold space. And so they just pop in one place, pop out one place and pop in another I actually would have liked to have seen that effect, um, because I just would love to see how Mm. they. Which is also kind of one of the reasons that none of the ships, especially the large ships, don't really seem to have this. They don't. There's nothing aerodynamic about them because they don't need to be aerodynamic because they're not like flying. Right. Yeah. There's no flying through space. They just pop in and out. Um, which I thought was cool, and then the design work, you know, and um, yeah, I'll be interested to see. There's some. uh, Ships are flown by navigators who are basically high on spice all the time. That helps them fly the ships through space to get the fold space from one place to the next. So, um, huh. yeah, I mean, all of this, I, the production design here, I, it has been a long time since I've been into, in a world with a film which feels complete
0: from start to finish. And this for you. Yeah. It felt like it was true to the books with that. Oh yeah, yeah,
1: in that sense. And I, well, and and I would just ask you, you know, coming in with this, you know, basically this basically being your first time to like see the world of Star Wars, you know. And and you know where that. I know you're such a fan, and that, that ended up feeling it feels like a complete universe. Did did Dune feel like that from all the different things that you see that everything seemed to fit within the universe they had put you in?
0: Yeah, well, and it's funny they mentioned Star Wars because there does feel like a lot of similarity there between Yep, Arrakis and Jakku. Um, but yeah, desert planets in Star Wars as well. You know, it it feels very old even though it's technically a futuristic for us anyway story um everything feels very worn and lived in and you know like it's going through this dust Mm -hmm. all the time and um i like the explanation of how the spice made the fremen's eyes blue yes Mm -hmm. because otherwise you know i would just be like why do they have blue eyes yeah (laughs) (laughs) yes a hundred percent but, yeah, it, it does feel complete, and I think that they did a great job as well. I really wanted to give a shout-out with the cinematography in particular. Mm-hmm. Gorgeous. For making everything feel so massive. hmm You know, and seeing it in the theater for the first time, I yes. think, is absolutely the way to see it, yep. because they even filmed it specifically with IMAX mm-hmm. cameras. Yep. They even... Um, we're saying with the production of some of the desert scenes to make it feel more expansive used um, rather than a green screen a brown screen (laughs) Mm -hmm. yes yeah (laughs) so i like that too so it there was a lot of thought behind making Mm -hmm. this look as um in world as possible Mm -hmm. and i appreciate that yeah i couldn't agree with you more i
1: I think everything you said there is is a hundred percent Right on target, you know, and, and I, I felt the exact same way in, in the sense that, you know, I, they've thought through every single part of this in the same way. I feel like the last time that I felt like this about a film series really in the sense of creating a world like this was in Lord of the Rings where you would watch the behind the mm-hmm. scenes extra extras and you'd see how those people had thought through every little detail on every single costume on every single ship on every single mm-hmm. you know every single piece of anything that had to do with the movie they had thought about the reason as to the why and the how of it and how it worked in this universe and Dune feels like that here and um yeah. and that's exactly what you want And so, no, I I just, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, And I think one of the things that this movie does phenomenally on top of the production design has to be the cast. Um, I Mm -hmm. don't have a problem with anybody here. Like, I think everybody's perfect. um, And there's nobody's performance who I didn't love. And part of that has to come with, I mean, Timothy Chalamet is the thing that this movie's shoulders rest on. Because if he doesn't work as Paul, you are not going to care about this movie, really. Um, and i
2: mm-hmm.
1: I thought that you know I've seen him in quite a few things, um, but his portrayal here of Paul was nuanced. It was real. He wasn't a whiny teenager. You know, he came off as as somebody who obviously is this coming-of-age story coming into his own, but at the same time, as he's coming into his own, realizing that he may be a pawn in a larger game and that his mom has been part of this game. And how does he feel about that? Like, all of that was so well done, and I I, I, I couldn't be happier with um, his portrayal. Like, I, I just... I was surprised at the nuance in in every single scene that he's in.
0: Mm -hmm. And that was my biggest question for you, too, was, you know, as a a fan of the series as a whole and everything, how did he and his mother, the casting choices of him and Rebecca Ferguson stack up for you? So I'm glad that you liked him. (laughs) Because otherwise it could have been hard. Did
1: you like him, especially since he's kind of your... You're into the story.
0: Yeah, and that's the other interesting thing. This is actually the first thing I'm s I've seen him in. I keep being told I need to see oh, Little really? Women, but okay. I haven't seen the new version. Yes, Little Women is is fantastic. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I, I agree. I think that he did a great job of getting across the seriousness of what's going on, you know. I mean, it's not supposed to be a jokey kind of movie. Mm-hmm everything that they're going right. through is on the brink of war. They've found out that they've been given a planet, which, you know, shouldn't make anyone feel mm-hmm. warm and fuzzy. <laughs> right. It's basically saying we gave you a whole planet of people. Like they're just, you know, bartering planets. Um, and his family's going, mm-hmm. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I, th- I think that he gets across very well that there's all these different pieces at play. And that he is in the midst of becoming a man. And uh, the scene, honestly, mm-hmm. that was my favorite between he and Oscar Isaac as Lito was at the um, graveyard where they're yes. talking. And yes. it really struck a chord with me when Oscar Isaac says uh, a leader answers a call. And I hope your answer is yes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes.
0: So it was just such a moving thing to hear him saying like. The most important thing you've ever done mm-hmm. is be my son. I'm not going to force this life right. on you, but I hope that you'll choose it. Yeah,
1: you know, uh, I, you'll be surprised, but you've seen Interstellar, and he's in Interstellar. Mm-hmm. He plays the younger version of the son. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so he, yeah, you, you, you've seen him once other, I'm sure, um, but no, I, I love that scene, and i um, one of the things that I felt like. The entire cast was able to do, which is that they were able to create emotional moments for the short amount of time that you have on screen. I mean, this movie is long, but at the same time, you know, you're a lot of these people don't survive the story right here, even in part one. And therefore, you have to create emotional moments with the characters very quickly. And I felt like like you said, Timothy Chalamet and Oscar Isaac have fantastic chemistry together to create that father-son relationship that is very special, even just with the small looks that they would give at each mm-hmm. other, you know, when the Herald comes and as he, you know, uh, as Leto looks to put his signet on, on the, the parchment there, he looks at his son and his son kind of gives him the nod to go ahead. You know, there's this this wonderful emotion of a father who truly loves his son. And I think, I would, again, this is one of the moments where I feel like I just would have liked where they, if they had done that with Jessica and Leto to let you know that this had happened because of love and you would, and you would understand how important, you know, um Paul is to mm-hmm. Leto in that sense. Like this is everything he's ever wanted is, is to have this son, to be able to pass things on to. So no, I, I agree right there a hundred percent. And, you know, at the same time, uh, you know I, Rebecca Ferguson. I huge fan of Rebecca Ferguson. Obviously, from the, the um, Mission Impossible movies. You know, I think she's phenomenal, um, and I kind of love her and everything that I have seen her in. Um, from you know Doctor Sleep uh, to I even enjoyed her Reminiscence that had just come out recently. Greatest Showman. Uh, she's phenomenal. Uh, and here i mean her portrayal of a mother who has created something that which she knows what he could be but dealing with the actual ramifications of him possibly becoming that and are terrified and not ready for that to happen she nails mm-hmm. it like Because the um, she plays with the emotion on her face so well, so many times. I adore her in this movie. Like she was perfectly cast.
0: So yes, definitely. I felt the same about Rebecca Ferguson. I also loved her in Greatest Showman um, and other things as well. I think. uh, Well, yeah, she was in Fallout too. Um, yeah. I mean, she's and she's about to be in more.
1: You know, Mission Impossible movies, a rogue nation Mm -hmm. uh, she was in. But yeah, she's in the next two that they're doing. So, yeah, 100%. But she
0: just definitely in the scene where um, Paul has to go in by himself with the Reverend Mother and she's standing outside and you see the dread growing more and more in her body language, Mm -hmm. I think gets across so well how much she cares for her son. and. Also knows what's coming and wants to stop it, but feels held back by responsibility or duty to, you know, being a a Jesuit. Um, I I think that she did an amazing job. I do think that they did well um, finding two actors that had good chemistry to get across that mother and son bond. <laughs> um, And I I really also love the scene where she and Paul are um, having to escape and they're alone together in the desert under the tent. Um, I think that it it was such a like we've said before, like a character study kind of moment where they're the only thing that you're focusing on. And it was such a heavy Mm -hmm. scene. So, yeah, I love her, too
1: yeah i hundred percent agree with you. I mean the way she plays that scene, and again, it's the fear that she has as she watches her son become the thing to which she knew he could be, mm-hmm. and she's not quite ready to handle that, and honestly, she doesn't know how to handle it, yeah, um in that moment uh and it's phenomenal and yet at the same time it's a it's a there is There is this intense sadness that's happening there, too, because they've both just lost somebody incredibly important to them. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Jessica loves Leto and, you know, Paul just lost his father, who we know from the scenes that they've had together. He loves his son and his son loved his father and looked up to his Mm father. He was an excellent father. Uh, which doesn't happen a lot in in sci fi movies these days, right. you know. Like in general, like you, it's usually a, a, a father daddy issues, and yet Paul doesn't have any of that because he has an incredible father, and so yeah, I think it's it's wonderful. And I've got to give it to to uh, Jason Momoa playing Duncan Idaho, who's a really important character in the entire Dune series. I loved him in this yeah. movie, and. His relationship with Paul, again, Paul has all of these great male role models, which like, never happens in movies mm-hmm. these days. And yet Paul is surrounded by incredibly good men, like men that you would want to be like. And, you know, Jason Momoa playing Duncan is like he's like the the
0: uncle that everybody wants. Right? Yeah. Oh, a thousand percent. And the way that they greet each other whenever they're, you know, it's it's like there's Mm -hmm. a long absence and then they run up and bear hug. Um, Yeah, I think that. Well, you know, I already love Jason Momoa and everything, but I mean, yeah, you've been his arms, actually. So Um, but yeah, he uh, he just gets across that, you know, he's like a warrior. And especially in this role, too, I really love the scene where he locks the door and defends them, you know, on um, Arrakis. I think that he does such a great Mm -hmm. job of being that person who's like, no, I will protect Paul, especially at all costs, because that's what his father would expect of me. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, and the beauty of that scene where he meets Jessica and Paul in the desert you yeah know, he he's stolen the uh Opera and he's he's got um kinds with him and he kneels before them you know and saying he's sorry and then and then he kisses the ring on Paul's finger and says, You know my mm-hmm. duke you know he as as close as him and paul are he immediately recognizes him as the authority figure now because of the the honor to which this man has mm-hmm. And so as close as they've been, he will always end up being subservient now, you know, at this point to, to Paul, it just, it, it's just so great. And so, um, you know, we could, uh, there's so many great people in the cast. So, you know, we could talk about Josh Brolin. I think he was great with the screen time he gets here. Um, and so many people, but I, I really wanted to ask you, because obviously very important to this are the villains. Mm -hmm. Uh, of the story the Harkonnens and specifically Stellan Sarsgar playing the Baron and what did you think of him
0: uh as this character I could definitely tell it was him even though it was under a lot of makeup and effects probably um (laughs) but you can still see the the face shape underneath um yeah, and the voice is so Yeah, exactly. And he, he did a, gr- a great job with this. And um, I didn't know what to compare it to. Obviously, I had not read the books or seen any of the other movies. But I definitely got across that vibe that he's just like a severe glutton. And so he has this mm-hmm. device, I guess, on his back that enables him to levitate from to to fro instead of have to walk.
1: Yeah, because he's too fat yeah. to walk anymore.
0: <laughs> and um, and then in his free time he sits in a vat of oil. Well, for recovery, okay. I, I'm not exactly <laughs> sure. You know how that helps you recover, but apparently it helps him yeah, recover. He, so. He's just got to you know soak for a little bit. But yeah, it, he was fantastic. He definitely brought across that sinister feeling. Um, and I think that you know they show how. Even just the the lead up to meeting him for the first time,
2: mm-hmm. I like
0: that they have um, who was it? Someone in House of I think. Maybe it was um, Duncan that even says the Harkonnen aren't going to just release this planet to us. Oh yeah,
1: that's uh, Gurney, Josh Brolin. Yeah talking yeah. yeah talking to to paul about how brutal they if are they ruled
0: and, yeah arrakis for 80 years yeah they consider that planet yeah. theirs
1: so mm-hmm. yeah. yeah no i i 100 agree with you i think he's fantastic i you know i think his he's so good at these separate mm-hmm. rules and uh, you know having just talked uh on um uh, Assembling Avengers with John about Thor and, you know, he's in that mm-hmm. movie. And he, he's so – he can be so lovable and likable and he can also just turn a, on a dime and be horrendously terrible in a film. He's so versatile as an actor and so I think he's wonderful in this role. And, you know, I again – there isn't anybody in this movie that I don't think gives a good performance with the time they have on screen and, and does a great job of taking the character and immediately kind of helping you know who this character mm-hmm. is. And so you'll forgive us if we don't talk about every single person because we don't have that kind of time um, mm-hmm. with the amount of people that are in this movie, but I think it's phenomenal. And I think you you, you were just mentioning this about uh, the Baron, and I think this is a good place to kind of jump into this idea that I really saw in the movie that I loved, the kind of theme ele- the thematic element of exploitation versus cooperation mm-hmm. and how House you—it only looks how to exploit things for profit, whereas on the other side you have House Atreides who sees the wisdom in partnering for mutual benefit. And in many ways it did remind me of... The Phantom Menace and how Obi-Wan refers to this idea of symbiosis, what you do to one happens to Mm -hmm. the other. And the Harkonnens don't care about that as long as it's lining their pocketbooks, you know, and whereas the Atreides, you see them looking to create a better world, not only for themselves, but others as well. And in fact, the definition of creating a better world for themselves is creating one that's beneficial for all involved. And, you know, Leto saying to Stiglar, hey, I've been given this planet, but I have no wish to be, a, you know, to take over your sieges. You will never be hunted, um, but I still have to steward what I've been mm-hmm. given. Um, and therefore, I can't promise not, to, you know, have to come into the desert. But I, you will treat, if you treat me with honor, I will treat you mm-hmm. with honor. Uh, and I just, I thought... The I the those two things we really see that at play here in the film very well.
0: Right. And it feels like they genuinely recognize the House of that they don't know everything, and that the people that know Arrakis mm-hmm. best and can help grow their knowledge of how to live there and thrive there mm-hmm. are the Fremen. And that they have to partner together in order for mutual survival because the Fremen aren't able to use the spice on their own to then trade with other houses and people off world. Mm -hmm. Um, They still need someone to help them so that they've got any kind of trade going on, right?
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So it does feel like they need someone to come and help them not just people to come and rule them though
1: and i I mean it's fascinating because obviously there is a huge history to um the the planet of arrakis and the fremen Mm -hmm. and and everything that goes along there but i think what's beautiful here is that you could see that it for you know a lifetime if not more the Fremen have not been used to anybody treating them with any kind of honor or respect, right. and Leto comes in completely differently. And Paul has bought into this idea as well. And so, you know, the the idea of whether we just exploit people or we we learn to cooperate, and and it's a it's this idea of power dynamics, right? You know, like. And that it's not just about having absolute power because that still doesn't actually do what's best for you um, to to have absolute power without the cooperation of those around mm-hmm. you. Um, and I think they do a really great job of portraying that in the movie. And then part of that is it's a famous quote from the book about fear and how fear is the mind killer. Um, and. What I loved about this is that the the we really do see in this movie how fear is driving everything especially in the idea of like tribe against tribe and house against house in this disunity uh that causes the chaos here the emperor knows that if he can keep all the great houses fighting against one another he's not going to be threatened mm-hmm. um and so the idea is to keep the fear level high between the houses so it, they act out of fear instead of, you know, brains, which is exactly the difference we were talking about earlier with exploitation and cooperation. You know, Calcitrates longs to change that dynamic, to not act out of fear, but act out of what's best not only for them, for those around them, and... Uh, I just I thought that was, you know, that's one theme that probably could have been a little bit stronger in the movie, especially because this quote is so famous Mm -hmm. from this book um, and so important to this book in general. But I still think it plays out pretty well.
0: Yeah, I would say I think that that's the biggest theme I feel throughout this movie is that they're showing fear in all aspects of the story. You know, they have Paul having fear of what's to come and whether or not he is ready and capable to face it. They have fear with his mother, you know, of seeing him growing up and having to be thrust out into possibly becoming the Duke and not being ready or she's not ready for him to grow up. Um. And then, you know, like you were saying, between all of the tribes so that basically the emperor has control over everyone and the emperor is exploiting the houses and then the houses are exploiting the others. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, I I think that they did use it well um, and in a lot of different ways, but I liked especially where it was used with um, Paul and his mother in the Thopter I think you said it was called mm-hmm. the omnifactor. Yeah, uh, yeah. in the storm. Yes, where it's yeah. not just talking about fear anymore, but also kind of combining it with this religious feel on their part of mm-hmm. um, sort of the let go and let God kind of thing. Yeah, that there's yeah. just and very much total so. trust yeah. that he has of I'm doing the right thing in this situation. And mm-hmm. it works out in his favor, right. but you know, he doesn't necessarily know he has to take mm-hmm. that leap of faith and that has right. fear with it.
1: Yes. yeah, And, and you know, in some ways that goes the whole idea of cooperation, but cooperating with the flow of nature mm-hmm. and the way things work, you know, uh, which uh, is a huge theme, obviously in the book, this idea of technology over nature and all, lots of those type of things get played out in, in the Dune series for sure. So, Hundred um, percent. One of the big things about the film is the score. Uh, Hans Zimmer, uh, you know, he opted not to do Tenet for this. You know, he's worked with Christopher Nolan a lot, but he decided to do this, and because he loved the what, book, this score. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, what did you think of this score? Because this is one of those scores to which is so integral. To the movie itself,
0: oh man, if this score was bad, it would have made the movie worse. I think you know it it sorry, not worse. I'm using the wrong word. It would have made the movie tainted. Um, it wouldn't have you know ruined the movie, but it's such another part of the movie like another another character. Um, it feels mm-hmm. to me the same way that the music was done for Black Panther. It's this very tribal sounding, um, lots of different rhythms and things that, you know, they even said that Hans Zimmer created new sounds. Um, He went out into the desert in Utah to try and get a real feel for natural sounds to incorporate into the score. Um, And it wasn't, you know, him alone. He also worked with a, a 32 person choir, apparently, that he conducted via Zoom in different parts and from a remote studio. That alone is really cool to me. (laughs) But yeah, it feels like this cool mix of, like I said, like tribal sounds, um, natural desert, uh, you know, like sounds of wind over sand kind of thing, um, as well as that mix in of very soft choir voices here and there. And I loved that. It's one of those scores
1: to which is a like you said it is another character in the movie you know mm-hmm. the and to create these different sounds and everything it, it is just incredible work obviously you know hans really wanted to make this something that felt unique and special to dune and didn't just feel like anything else mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's really cool and commendable. And it's, you know, I'm, I've enjoyed, I've been listening to the soundtrack. It's been out for weeks now and I've been listening to it and I really enjoy listening to it, especially as I'm reading, you know, Dune books. And of course he released not only the, the Dune soundtrack, but they also did the art and soul of Dune, which goes along with the making of book that I read Uh, As well as the Dune sketchbook, which is basically just longer and more extended versions of, like, ideas, basically, that he had for these different segments of the movie kind of played out um, in in different ways. But, you know, in in all honesty, the thing I really want is I just want a complete score for the film uh, because I love the way that the music plays out in the movie, Mm -hmm think it's really cool and I really enjoy it and I think it is something I mean it stands apart you know um and it makes sense because you know Hans Zimmer also did the same thing for his Blade Runner 2049 which is to create this audio character to which helped extrapolate your feeling of being in this place mm-hmm. and this time Um, and he did the, I mean, he was going for the exact same feeling in Dune and I think he really nails it. Um, something I, I did want to ask you honestly, uh, before we got to our ratings was, you know, this is a really big effects heavy film. And so how do you feel like that works? Was there ever, I mean... Was there anything that you questioned in the movie, or uh, what did you what did you think about how um, the effects here uh, for
0: Dune work for you? I think that for something that had to have effects in some major areas, it didn't feel heavy on effects. Everything felt natural and felt that it was so well done, or at least figured out how to tweak it to make it look. More natural. Um, it helped a lot. I, I think that the biggest thing that they did that turned out very well with the effects was the sandworms. Because mm-hmm. every time that the mouth actually opens up and you really get a good look at it, it's not just like a little glimpse, it's like extremely detailed, feels larger than life the way it should. Um, and then they even did a good job of showing how they move but not being able to show much at that Mm -hmm. point or um, when they show at just one point a glimpse of one of the Fremen riding one because you've already Mm -hmm. seen a sandworm not underground you're going geez that guy's awesome (laughs) or girl you know and so I, I think that Where they did use the effects, like I said, I think it comes across so well that you don't go, that's bad effects or, oh, that's really noticeable. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I think this is one of those movies where the effects are just perfect. I mean, they've they've worked very hard to make sure that you are not pulled out of this movie effects wise, Mm -hmm. that you feel immersed in every single scene. And that means that every single effect needs to feel perfect. And, you know, I think you're absolutely right in calling out that you need to make the sandworms, especially once you see them feel real, mm-hmm. feel immensely powerful and crazy awesome. And just everything that, you know, f- of course, fans have been wanting to see. And yeah, I mean, for you, obviously the surprise of seeing that somebody can ride a sandworm. Mm-hmm leaves a lot for, uh, you know, part two, you know, and you're like, oh, I can't wait to see that, you know. Um, How do they, you know, and, you know, we obviously saw Dr. Kynes looking to mount one and ride one, but we didn't get to see her do it because she dies before that. And so then realizing that's exactly what she was planning to do, I'm sure is pretty cool for you. But, I mean, I did, I, I really... I couldn't believe what I was seeing in some ways in the sense that, again, and I've been saying this the whole show, but it's just been so long since I've felt this immersed in a world that felt so real. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And in all honesty, I really do think that the last time that that happened was either Lord of the Rings or I felt that way about his Blade Runner 2049 He's so good at making sure that you feel immersed in the world that you're in in the movies that he creates. And I cannot wait for part two. But before we get to part two, Christy, what would you rate Dune part one?
0: So I didn't have to think about that too much because I have to say even on just the one viewing I've had, I definitely want to have more of them. Uh, I felt that it was, like I said, something that for especially the cinematography, the plot simplification and the score was enthralling for me. And especially for my first experience ever with Dune was a good one. Um, so I have to rate it a uh, four and a half out of five sandworms because dang like i just i left feeling like you know where you've seen a movie that you feel like was just profound and the rest of your day you're just like kind of mulling it over it felt like that kind of movie like i left and i felt different than when i went in and so yeah i mean i i think it's almost a perfect movie um i think that you know maybe there are one or two things i would add but not much um and I did want to, since mm-hmm. you mentioned um, Dr. Kynes, I wanted to give a shout out to Sharon Duncan Brewster because we've seen her in other things. And I think that here, especially, she did such a great job with the limited time she had on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if you knew this, Matt, but this movie is kind of a who's who of Rogue One. Because uh, she was yeah. in Rogue One and the cinematographer, Greg Fraser, was The cinematographer for Rogue mm-hmm. One. <laughs> so, yep. speaking of Star Wars, here we are. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And, and I mean, like Rogue One, the cinematography here is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, when you finally read the book for Dune, you'll realize that Dr. Kynes has actually been gender swapped. Um, well, and mm-hmm. so, um, but uh, I, I feel like that worked here, and uh, you know, look. For my quibbles about the, the minor things that I had to say about this movie that I would have changed, would have liked to have seen, part of that just comes from the immense knowledge of Dune in the books. And obviously, when you're trying to adapt anything this big, um, you're always going to have that. You know, I love the little Lord of the Rings movies. They're not perfect. And there are things that I kind of wish were done differently in some of them. But That doesn't mean I don't absolutely love them as films. Mm-hmm. And this movie is a masterpiece. I mean, it just is uh, to me. And I will give this five out of five Chris Knives because I think this is everything as a fan I wanted from Dune. I, I just... And again... Yeah, I mean, because I'm a fan, I can also have quibbles about it, mm-hmm. but I loved that somebody brought my imagination to life like this after reading so many Dune books. And I absolutely can't wait for part two. So, Christy, uh, I guess before
0: we get re- to recommendations, I have one question is uh, when are you going to read Dune? Ugh, I, I haven't been reading anything lately. So, you know, maybe the next time I read a book. <laughs> Maybe audiobook. Oh, yeah. Good point. Or uh, at least, you know, book on so, my um, iBooks. I've been reading a lot of books that way, too. Yeah. There you go. There you go. So, uh, well, it is that time of the
1: show where we get to recommendations. So, Christy, what do you want to recommend to the
0: listeners of the 602 Club today? So, I'm excited about today's recommendation because... This movie reminded me of seeing those commercials for the series back when I watched the sci fi channel on TV all the time. And um, my husband and I are, are a little bit different in that aspect. I love old sci fi, and um, he likes a little bit more fantasy stuff and leans more, you know, with Star Wars and things like that. But um, Dune was right up my alley. And the stuff that I want to recommend is. All stuff that was popular in 90s sci-fi channel era. Um, So I I recommend checking out a few different things from that era um, if people have the ability to stream them. Um, Original Mystery Science Theater 3000. Um, That was my main thing. Um, I also used to watch a ton of Stargate SG-1. Xena Warrior Princess. Mm -hmm. Hercules. There you go. um, Sliders. Quantum leap, the outer limits, uh, all of that, that was my bread and butter. I watched it like every day when I got home from school. (laughs) So yeah. Um, if you have the ability to check out, um, just look up sci-fi channel shows from the nineties, but, um, Mm -hmm. all of them are good, but uh, I I think the one that's kind of fun that may be hard to find, but if you can check out quantum leap, that one was really Mm, fun. Yeah. Yep, Scott Bakula. Yep, that's how I originally saw him, and he has come to Dragon Con before.
2: Yeah,
1: that's And it's about
0: time travel. I mean, come on. Can
1: you ask for more? Yeah. Well, uh, this week, um, you know, it's it's hard because there's so many things that I I do want to recommend to people. Um, But I'm going to recommend, I just picked this up, and I am working my way through it. It's the James Bond Archives by Paul Duncan, and it is a massive book about all of the James Bond films, and it doesn't just cover the Eon predictions. It also covers the parody film that was done um, with David Niven, the Casino Royale, first Casino Royale, as well as Never Say Never Again, all the way through. This new edition uh, covers all the way through No Time to Die. And um, actually, we're going to I'll be interviewing him for the 602 Club here coming up in November. So I'm, I'm encouraging you to pick this up. Now, it is a more expensive book, but I have both of his Star Wars Archives book, the original Trilogy and the prequel edition I cannot more highly recommend books and so as i'm working my way for this james bond archives book it is also living up to those and so i highly recommend picking that up uh, when you can because it's awesome but Christy, um if everybody wants to catch up with you because i know they do uh where can they find you
0: you can find me talking about more old sci-fi stuff and you know all kinds of other things on instagram and twitter at bespin bell And then I also hang out in the Babel conference sometimes. And I have a show I do with my friends Amanda and Teresa called Sabers and Spells on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network, where we talk about sci-fi and geek things we don't usually get to cover. And we are covering Labyrinth currently, so uh, stay tuned for that. And you could find me all over social media
1: under the name Matt Rushing 2 So, any of the major social media platforms, you can find me, even Letterboxd. Um, you can also find me here on the network doing a bunch of shows. Of course, in the 602 Club feed, you'll find Snyder Cut as well as Assembling Avengers uh, with John Mills. You'll also find me doing Warp 5, The Orb, and Literary Treks. Of course, Warp 5 is about Star Trek Enterprise. The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And Literatrex is about the books and the comics of Star Trek. And then over at the Nerd Party Network, uh, I did a show with Drea Kaufman called Owl Post. It was about Harry Potter. And that's a finished show now. We covered every single chapter in that series, one chapter at a time. And then last but not least, John Mills and I talk about Star Wars every week on aggressive negotiations. But thank you so much for joining us.